You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Leila F. Saad, New York Times bestselling author of Me and White Supremacy. I met Leila virtually back in 2017. My blog post had just gone viral or it was just about to go viral. And I wasn't aware of Leila's work prior to my blog post going viral, which you can see at exploringbias.com. But I do remember that she was one of those voices, one of those people who shared my post on Facebook when she was using it regularly back in 2017. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, I'm in awe of Black women. And then she continued with more words of praise and then shared my blog post. So I went in search of who is Layla? And what is she about? And that's when I found her blog post that had gone viral in August of 2017. To date, that blog post, I want to speak to white women about, or spiritual white women, about white supremacy, was shared a quarter of a million times in just a few short weeks. And what galvanized or sparked Layla to write that blog post was what she witnessed in Charlottesville that took place a few days earlier to her penning that letter to spiritual white women. Although Layla was many, many miles away from the events which unfolded in Charlottesville, Virginia, back in August 2017, it concerned her because many of her clients who are spiritual white women are the mothers, the sisters, the cousins, the daughters, the wives, of the many men who showed up that day in Charlottesville to chant, we will not be replaced, or you will not replace us. Since authoring that blog post, Layla has gone through many iterations of herself. And what I mean is that she's not changing herself to fit other people's ideas of who she should be, but instead it's a discovering of her own self and who she truly is. And the one thing I've admired about Layla through all of this is the way she upholds her boundaries. Here she is, a best-selling author, and it looks like she has her brand together. But that has come through many iterations of learning who she is and many iterations of different conflicts that have happened along the way, which has only helped her to grow and become more and more aware of who she is as herself, as an authentic being without other people's labels being poured upon her. And so I thought it would be an apt conversation for Layla and I to talk about boundaries and what that looks like and why it is that those who hold space for others to become anti-bias and anti-oppressive and anti-racist, why that takes a toll on the educators who take them through that journey. And why it is that if you are an anti-racism educator or an anti-bias facilitator or anti-oppressive teacher, why it's so critical that you carve out enough space for self-care. And we do so not so that we can withdraw to hide, but we do so to withdraw to recharge. I'm trusting that this conversation will help you understand why it is an act of self-love to uphold your boundaries. Especially if you're highly sensitive or a deep feeler, you know how exhausting it can be to try to people-please all the time. And oftentimes we please others by diminishing our own needs so that we can be supported and accepted and seen. But the opposite happens. The opposite is that we become tense and we feel trapped, and we're extremely tired trying to satisfy everyone else's needs above our own. So if you're struggling with boundaries, if you're struggling with setting a clear border between you and others, 
then this conversation is going to enrich you and give you permission to start to say no. Because when you know what you're saying yes to, your no becomes easy. And that's a quote from William Urey's book called The Power of Positive No. Let me tell you a little bit more about Layla. Layla F. Saad is a New York Times and the Times bestselling author of the groundbreaking book, Me and White Supremacy. She's also the host of Good Ancestor Podcasts and the founder of Good Ancestor Academy. As a widely read writer, a globally sought speaker, and a popular podcast host, Layla is passionate about creating inspiration, education, and activation for personal and collective change in the world. Layla's work is driven by a powerful desire to become a good ancestor, to live and work in ways that leave a legacy of healing and liberation, especially for Black girls and Black women. Layla is unapologetically confronting the oppressive systems of white supremacy and patriarchy while offering important teachings and tools for transforming consciousness, cultivating personal anti-racism practice, and taking responsibility for our individual and collective healing. Here's Layla. So Layla, hi. Hi. <laughs> we're, like, here. <laughs> we're here. It's like a burst of emotions energy. and, and uh-huh. energy and enthusiasm because we haven't spoken like face-to-face in months. Months. Which is unusual. So I feel like I feel like everyone who's listening to this conversation is going to get a real treat today yes, because this is us sharing everything that we've been not able to share over the last few months. Yeah. Well, this is beautiful. And we'll get into the history of how we met and all that in just a moment. And I just want to say it's wonderful to hear your voice. Mm, it's great to hear yours as well. Uh, our journeys have been kind. It mirrors each other. In certain ways, only my lessons tend to be more quieter and your lessons seem to be much more public. Yeah. So, um, well, been... at the same time, we're both super introverted people. So that's always like the mirror that's always there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so the conversation that we're going to have, I want to start off with a question that you actually asked on your podcast that I've adopted. So if anyone listening is wondering, this is where I got this question from, from Layla's podcast, Good Ancestor. And so the question I have for you to start out our conversation, Leila, is who are the ancestors that influence your work, whether intellectual, ideological, familial? Who do you bring to your work with you? Uh, I feel like, you know, that quote by Oprah, I stand as one, but I come as 10,000. That's how I feel in this. And it's so good to know that you're not standing by yourself, that you bring so many people with you who have influenced you in direct and indirect ways. A lot of people who I would say, a lot of the ancestors who I would say have influenced me on my journey from the family side would be my parents. Not because they do the kind of work that I do. They don't at all. My father works in the, he's a mariner. My mom is an international entrepreneur, but also very much a mother and a wife. But the way that they influenced me is through their values. So they raised me and my brothers to have values around excellence, leadership, generosity, and building a legacy for your children and creating things in the world that have a benefit beyond you. And so One of the things that my mom, when she read my book, and she called me crying hysterically when she read it, crying because she couldn't believe I'd written it. (laughs) But, (laughs) But also she couldn't believe that I had articulated all the things that she had experienced as an East African immigrant coming to the UK in the 70s and experiencing a lot of the things that she experienced and then raising Black kids through the 80s and 90s. So many of the experiences that I wrote about matched up with her own experiences. And she said, I don't have the words for it. But one of the things that she said to me that was really meaningful was, this is your tarakat jariya, which is in Islam, an act of charity that lives beyond your lifetime. 
something that you do and that you put out into the world that even after you're gone, people will continue to benefit from it. And that is something that I've seen my parents do. They've done it in many different ways. They have educated their nieces and nephews. They have built an orphanage that houses over a hundred kids in Tanzania. They do all kinds of things. And for her to say that something that I poured so much of myself into that she was like, this is what it is. Like having that reflected back to me was just everything. I can't even express what that meant to me. So my parents are a huge influence on me. My maternal grandmother is the ancestor who comes into my dreams a lot of the times. And I take it, whenever she's there, I take it as a sign that something good is happening or she's very happy with how things are moving in my life. Or she wants me to know that I'm protected and that I'm seen. And so those are the familial ones. And then the ideological literary ancestors Audre Lorde. Yeah, Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler. <laughs> and so many others. I would say those two are the main ones. And I was rearranging my bookshelf today, just moving things around. And I have one of the shelves is actually an altar space to them both. And it was lower down on the bookshelf. So I moved it higher up today because I was like, I actually, like, I want to see your books and your faces every time I come into the office. They influence me, yes, as Black women who are writers and were very radical both for their time and now, but also I think just for their complexity. They weren't just one thing. They weren't just writers. They were women who were really defining themselves for themselves, exploring themselves the entire time. We look back and see them as these like icons, but they were just people. You know, there were people like we are people. And they remind me when I see their books and I see their pictures, like, yes, I have your stack of books that I will carry with me, right, to my dying day. But also, you're the reminder to me to remember my own humanity and to not get stuck into an idea of myself that is really what other people think of me as opposed to what I think of myself. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> And you talk about the nuance, and I want to ask you about your relationship with your religion. I was raised in a fundamental Protestant religion, and things like crystals, essential oils, altars, ancestors were all frowned upon. And so I've had to come to terms with how I was raised in terms of my religion versus who I am to this day. And so you spoke about the nuance. So, how do you? Build that nuance into your relationship with Islam. Yeah, I'm glad you asked this because I've had my journey of exploring spiritual modalities and belief systems and philosophies that were not Islamic. And I felt like that was a really important part of my journey because it became the point at which two things happened maybe three things, actually. I made a real connection to myself as a woman and what it means to not just be a Muslim, but to be a woman who is a Muslim. And the ways in which patriarchy plays a role in everything that we do in our entire lives, and including the wounds as well as the wisdom that I've inherited from my female ancestors. So that was really important. The other part was that it got me to see how there are Things that may look different on the surface, but underneath they're the same. So I would explore things, for example, outside of Islam, and then I would be able to, oh, actually, we have this in Islam. We just call it something else. Or we have this concept. It's just said in a different way. Like I remember this with exploring this idea of different gods, but that have different attributes. And I thought, well, we have that in Islam. We have one God, but he has 99 attributes. He's not just one thing. He's a multitude of things. So that was really helpful, seeing the connectedness between these concepts. But also it became the place from which I then got to choose things intentionally instead of just saying, I'm Muslim because I inherited, because I was born Muslim. I believe these things because I was taught them. I actually did the digging, did the work, and then looked at it and said, what feels right to me? What feels in alignment to me? And I take that. And that's me. That's my relationship with God. And so... The nuance, I think, is that we own and accept that we're not just one thing. We own and accept that 
we have a responsibility to create our own relationship with God or creator or the universe, whatever that term is for you. And that you can be things that look opposite and it's all still you. (laughs) Right. When we're recording this, the U.S. election for president had taken place and they're still counting, counting, counting. And it goes to what you said. It's like some people are vacillating between all these emotions. And I found as I was scrolling, someone said, you're allowed to feel all these things. You can feel elation, the results you're seeing, and then you can feel fear. Like both are okay. Yeah. And Um, both are human. Both are human. So this idea of living in the fullness of our humanity, which is what we are asking for as we are building an anti-racist, anti-oppressive world, we have to give ourselves that gift of being fully human. And what that means to me, at least, is that I have to accept that all parts of me are there, the parts that I like and the parts that I don't like, the parts that I'm proud to show other people and the parts that I'm ashamed of. They're all me. They make up all of who I am. And in that knowing and in that acceptance is a lot of freedom a lot of freedom to be many things at the same time and not to make any of them wrong. Right. So true. So true. And especially with this work that both you and I steward, it's also accepting your ancestors, that they weren't all good and they weren't all bad. And so I see this deep shame that comes upon, especially white people that I work with, where it's like, well, I'm a fifth generation colonizer. And it's just this deep, 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 deep shame. Yeah. What's the problem with that? What's the problem? Well, I think I've seen this definitely when I've interviewed a few token white people on my podcast, not many. (laughs) And when I asked them the question that you asked me, right, who are the ancestors who've influenced you on your journey? It's a really uncomfortable question for them because they have to own the ancestors who were colonizers or enslavers or all of those things that come with it. And they don't want to make that connection or they don't know how to hold it and still be here in their full wholeness and full integrity. And what I've often said is like, you have to own it, but also that wasn't the only thing that they were, just like it isn't the only thing that you are, right? So you can own it and take responsibility for it and examine the ways in which it influences you, what you have, what you have access to, how you think, how you treat other people, right? Yes, do deep work around that. And that's not the only thing that you are. And as we move on this journey, which is still so much slower going than so many of us would want it to be as we move to a freer world, yet it is moving. When we get to that world, I want us to be there and to be fully human and not to be leaving parts of us behind that we haven't integrated, like we haven't done the work to integrate it into ourselves and heal from, right? And I say that not just for people who have white privilege, it's for us as well. Like we have not been exempt from the conditioning of white supremacy. We have not been complicit in white supremacy in other ways, whether it's against our own selves, the oppression that we do to ourselves, the oppression that we do to those who look like us or who don't look like us, but look slightly different, right? Maybe darker shades or non-Black people of color across cultures and ethnicities. Like we're all in it. We're all in it. And so as we move towards this healing, we have to look at those parts of ourselves and do the healing work to integrate it so that we're not leaving parts of ourselves behind that we judge as bad or wrong. Because anytime I think we leave a part of ourselves behind. We can't show up fully for ourselves and we can't show up fully for the world. And that's why I believe the whole idea, I've seen people trying to lead webinars saying, fight your biases or 10 ways to squash your unconscious biases. And I look at that and I'm just like, no, that's the wrong approach. Yeah. Because we don't want to fight against that part of us that is dark and shadowy. What we want to do is reveal. And then, Yeah. yeah, reveal it. And then accept that it's a part of, as you said before, the human experience. Yeah. I also think like fighting against it makes it this thing that is so unknown. You haven't revealed it. So you don't know what you're fighting. You just know that you're fighting this part of yourself that is bad. 
it's like you're constantly running away from yourself and you're moving from a space of fear. And when you're moving from a space of fear while holding the intention to be anti-oppressive, to be better, there's no space for love for yourself. There's no space for love for other people. So that then your actions become performative. The things that you do lack substance and depth. There's not a real sense of sincerity or integrity. It's not coming from this deep well space from within. So you can't sustain it also. You're ruled by your fear. You're ruled by your fear of who you are, who you think you are, who you think other people think you are. And you're just constantly in uh, reactive mode. And that's why back in May, June 2020, when many of our platforms as anti-bias and anti-racism educators started to grow due to the death of George Floyd, I mean, I vacillated between, again, this nuance that a Black man died and my platform grew. Ah, like the cognitive dissonance that it creates is, there's no words for it. I don't have the words for it. It's so hard, I think, for people to understand because we live in a time where you're supposed to want to grow and be bigger and be more visible, but we don't want to carry it from that space. No, it's gross. It's gross. And so I shared with my mom this feeling I had that my platform grew because a Black man died. And how that just attacked my soul and just brought me into this place where it was just, I could feel dark and it feels like, and then my mom said, but Lisa, you're also here to help. Yes. And And if people are searching for that help, then that's the place you need to anchor yourself in. Like I'm getting emotional right now. Yes. Our platforms grew because a black man was murdered and they also grew because we have been consistently showing up delivering work that is trying to help create a world where that doesn't happen. That was the part that I had forgotten, I think. Like that was the way in the end that I made peace with it or some level of peace at least because otherwise I was just, I was a mess. Like I was like, how do I process this? That's right. There's no instruction manual, right? There's no book on how to process this. And yet we want to keep showing up still. And I think that's the thing that people don't see. So you talked about the mm-hmm. urgency and this rush for people to be seen as one of the good ones. I can't tell you how many lists I'm on because yeah. people are just rushing to do things. A therapist with a large platform stole my prompts and passed them off as her own. And when it was come to my attention, she was at a march <laughs> for Black Lives Matter uh-huh. when this happened. And so there's this rush to... I want to be one of the good ones. Look at me. I'm one of the good ones. I'm one of the good ones. Not realizing that part of this work is to hurry up and slow down. Yes. Which is part of that nuance again. Right, right. And the hurrying up, I think, isn't hurry up to show. And I think that's where people get mixed up. I think it's like, hurry up because this is urgent. Yeah, it's been urgent for centuries. So the hurrying up isn't hurry up to show. It's hurry up to begin your work. Hurry up to get on your journey. Hurry up to begin digging inwards and doing the work. That's where you need to hurry up. Yes, yes. Now, you have said that you were raised in the West Mm -hmm. and you live in the East. Mm -hmm. And for some, they will look at you and say, well, Layla, that means you have privilege. You're not on these lands here where we are fighting for our survival every day. Yeah. And so I don't know what type of privilege to even call that, but what is your answer to that statement? I mean, I agree. That is a privilege. It is a privilege not to have to live with the fear of myself, my husband, my mother, father, my children being harmed or killed by police. It's a privilege not to be impacted by COVID in the ways that many black and brown people in the West have. Like there's so many levels, the privilege that I have. And at the same time, I am a black Muslim woman in a world that is anti-black world over. And in many spaces and places and countries, also Islamophobic. So both of those things are true at the same time. And something that 
I have learned on my journey is I get to hold my experiences are real. Like my experiences with racism, my experiences with anti-Blackness are real. And I have to be extremely mindful to understand that my experiences are not like other people's experiences also, that there are places and spaces where I hold privilege. I don't have in my body, I don't hold the intergenerational ancestral trauma of being enslaved by white colonizers. I don't have that. So yes, both are true at the same time. And it doesn't erase my blackness, right? So all are true at the same time. And I think being mindful of that for myself is really, really important. And you know this, when I speak in my work, I don't speak about countries. I don't speak about politics. I don't speak about those nuances that have nothing to do with my experience. I speak about the personal work of anti-racism, the ways in which white supremacy has infected us on a mental, emotional, spiritual level, and the work that needs to be done to go within, inside, to examine it and undo it. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm a second generation Canadian of Jamaican descent with Nigerian, Cameroonian, French, Irish, and Scottish ancestors. Yes, come That's through. a mouthful, mouthful. <laughs> and when I saw people critiquing Kamala Harris around her ancestry, she's a second generation American of South Asian and Jamaican descent, White supremacy doesn't stop to say, okay, well, your shade is not dark enough, so I'm not going to oppress you. Or, yeah, you were born only in the last generation. Yeah, so I'm not going to... Like, nobody asks me when I go to the U.S. to shop. I make the trip, I drive, and go to you. No one stops to say, oh, are you Canadian before I racially harass you? White supremacy doesn't care. Doesn't care. Right. There may be levels to the ways that you experience it, but you're not exempt from it. I think that's really important to remember, and especially as it relates to anti-Blackness. All right. So we're going to come back in a moment, Layla, and continue this conversation. And we'll do so after this sponsored message. The inner field trip is what I call doing the inner work. You may have heard that phrasing from time to time. I've seen how powerful the inner field trip has been to those who participate in it. And in their own words, patrons will share with you how going on an inner field trip has changed how they raise their children, teach their students, care for their patients, write their books, and operate a business, just to name a few. You can join the inner field trip community at any time. You pay what you can from four predetermined amounts the least being $5 per month. For less than a boost on Candy Crush, for less than two days of your monthly Netflix membership, you can begin the work of protecting your energy so you can unapologetically stand on the side of justice. And when we're not doing the inner field trip, your monthly commitment goes towards helping to produce this podcast. We're back. I'm in conversation with Leila F. Saad, New York Times and The Times bestselling author of Me and White Supremacy. I just love saying that. <laughs> when you got news that your book made it to the bestsellers list, we were sitting in a car driving to the American Authors Museum in captivating Chicago. And it's a beautiful place. Both the city and the museum. The museum was amazing. And I recorded that moment. And while you were sharing the news with your agent and then your husband, I'm like in the back saying, yeah, I told her weeks ago that it would make the bestsellers list. I told her, I told her. (laughs) And then I'm saying, yeah, it's not about me, but I just want to make sure that I'm part of this history. Anyways, so since then, you've done a lot of interviews, especially with movers and shakers in the literary world. But it was very, 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 very interested when you had an interview with one of the most high-profile executives here in Canada, where I was born and live. And this person owns, and I have to be careful what I say, because if I say what they own, then every Canadian listening will know exactly who I'm talking about without me even having to say their name. But because this isn't about the person, it's about the pattern, we're going to leave the name out. 
And so this person, a high-profile executive married to another high-profile executive, they're like the, you know, think of the power couple in your country who owns a lot of stuff and are extremely wealthy. And this is who I'm talking about. And they won't boast about their wealth because, well, they're Canadians and like all Canadians are quiet about these things. But you canceled an interview that this high-profile executive was going to have with you. It was going to be on their platform and with their audience. And they have a lot of clout here in Canada. And you were like, got to cancel. And I was like, oh, no one says no to this person. And yet my friend Layla did. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about that experience. Oh. <laughs> so you know that I haven't talked about this anywhere. Good. Online. And that is intentional because it wasn't just that she didn't read the book. It was that I had a conversation with her between her and myself that was extremely harmful and that she, I think, didn't recognize how harmful it was. But that even when we shared with her and I specifically wrote her a very long letter explaining all the reasons why it was harmful and what I expected and what I had been told would happen and what happened instead and why it was harmful and what specific actions I would like to see with regards to repairing harm done and making apologies, that letter was ignored. And I've never heard back from herself or that company. So I spent a lot of time deciding what it was that I wanted to do in that situation and ultimately made the decision not to talk about it publicly. And so I won't go into the specifics other than what I've just shared. And this is the most I've shared anywhere because I didn't say anything about it publicly. But I do want to share why I've chosen not to say anything publicly. And I know you will understand this. As a Black woman in this work, I could share all the details of what happened. And a rush of people would come in to say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And let's boycott this and let's do this and this and that and the other. And while it may feel good in the moment to say this awful thing happened to me, the emotional and energetic payment I would have to pay afterwards would wipe me out. And so that was one part of it. And the other part was that it really forced me to get clear in myself about how I wanted to respond to situations where things like that happened and whether I wanted to be reactionary or whether I wanted to stay in my center. And ultimately, that was what I decided. Look, I expressed in very clear terms all the things that I've said to them. It was ignored. That will be their karma to deal with someone in a situation like that and then ignore. My karma was that I showed up with full integrity the whole time. And I know that I did. And so I moved on from it. But I will say, just in wrapping this up, that having white privilege is one thing. Having extreme wealth privilege on top of white privilege is a whole other thing. And there is a level of entitlement and lack of empathy that comes from being in that space that I really think that people who are in that position need to do very, very deep work within themselves to be aware of the ways in which they're causing harm that they don't even realize. That it's not just enough to pay lip service to the work, but you have to really see that I hold immense privilege. And so I'm probably doing the most harm <laughs> out of all the people that could be doing harm. And unless I'm willing to look within, I'm just going to keep doing the same. That's all I'll say on that. <laughs> yeah. No, and the reason why I wanted you to touch on that is because it's around boundaries, which I've always admired of you. Oftentimes when I find myself in situations, I'm like, what would Layla do? <laughs> and then I send you a message and I say, okay, Layla, right. what would you do? <laughs> and I say the exact same thing that you thought I would say, right? Right, right. And I'm just like, okay, 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 okay. But it's so critical that when, I mean, for anything in life, you need to have strong boundaries, but especially if you consider yourself introverted, you are affected by energies, you're stimulated and you can get overstimulated so easily. Yeah. It's so important to have these boundaries in place. And the added layer of then being a public person, right? And people assuming that you shouldn't have boundaries, that they should be able to have access to you and that them offering you their platform is a favor that they're doing you as opposed to 
a great gift that they get to receive. Wow. Wow. And so one of the conversations I have with my mentor coaches is around this very issue that the people who are showing up either voluntarily or involuntarily happen to be people who don't really have class power. Yeah. And yet those in the C-level suite, CEO, CMO, CR, you know, whatever it may be, or even chairmen of the board and so on, who have, as you say, wealth privilege, they're the ones who are not showing up. They're out golfing, spending time on their villa, and just leaving it to the masses to figure it out. Right. How do we get them to engage? I mean, I felt like that was the question that I was left with after writing, like I said, a very extensive letter. And it wasn't just, this feedback wasn't just coming from me. It was also my team making it really clear why the event was being canceled and all of these things. It wasn't just me, right? And I come as someone with, as I expressed to them, I'm someone who is a public figure. I've written one of the most popular books of this year. I'm a best-selling author. I'm supported by a team of many people. And you would treat me in this way. So there's nothing, right? So we're taught like work really hard, right? Earn that respect, like work twice as hard as everyone else to get there. And I'm like, well, I did, like I got there, right? (laughs) And so it speaks to me, it really helped me clarify actually what white privilege is and white wealth privilege and the kind of protection it could give. And I remember thinking, if I don't say anything, am I complicit in protecting their privilege? If I don't out them, if I don't call them out, am I complicit in that? But ultimately, I had to save my own self first. I was like, I'm not going to sacrifice myself in an attempt to try and chip away at this privilege, which is centuries that they are carrying it, right? So you're asking like, what does it take to get them there? I don't see beyond them their own volition, right? Because privilege feels really, really good. And the more you have of it, the less you want to let it go. So unless it comes from an internal volition, because clearly seeing Black people murdered is not enough. Having a racist president is not enough. Mm, Yeah. Right? Like all of these things, it's not enough. So it has to come from a space within, like this is important to me as a leader. I talk about in my work, and you do as well, right? Leadership and what it means to be a leader. And it's not just the position. It's not just the status. It's not just the class. What speaks from within that says, I must do this, even if it means I look like I got pie on my face, right? Even if it means I have to make a public apology, I have to walk back things that I said, I have to lose something, whether it's money or status or respect, whatever it is, but I have to do it from that place of personal volition of it's the right thing to do. And people of that age also have lived through the civil rights movements, right? What they're seeing now in this year is not the first time that they're ever seeing anything to do with racism. Right, right. It just speaks to how entrenched that privilege can be and how it actually, like me trying to throw myself up against it does harm to me, does nothing to them. And I think this is the space in which white co-conspirators have a role to play. Because they can throw themselves up against that wall and not get harmed in the way that I do. Mm, Yes, yes. And the collective white voice, as we have seen, whether it swings this way or that way, the collective white voice, when it is uh, unified and united, actually has the ability to do a lot. Yes, absolutely. Right? If it wouldn't have, the US wouldn't be, not that I speak on politics, but if it wouldn't have... Well, as you know, history is, I speak about these times from a historical perspective. And I was sharing a training with my patrons about the reason why it's so important to protect the prompts that I share within the community. And I look back at the French Revolution. And the reason why the French Revolution was dismantled wasn't because the poor stood up and said, we must fight. Because even though the poor made up 97% of the population at that time, they didn't have the power to vote. They couldn't own lands. They didn't have stable employment. It was actually the middle class or the bourgeoisie. I love saying that, Mm -hmm. bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie. That finally said, because they could own land, but they also couldn't vote. And they finally said, enough. Mm -hmm. And led by Mm -hmm. the middle class, the rest followed and then toppled that entire structure. 
who's the representative of the middle class in society today? Hmm. And what power do they have? What's their proximity to wealth that can empower them to use their voice to stand with those who are oppressed and marginalized? Yes. And really just taking on like, I'm not doing this because of the ways that it will benefit me. (laughs) Right, 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 right. right. (laughs) But that would require us to have like group think and to see each other. And It's that I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And this is why this concept of being a good ancestor is so important to me. And is something that I clung onto as a way to save myself from just how emotionally violent and emotionally laborious this work can be. It was my bigger thing. I'm doing this because of this, because I want to be a good ancestor. Because when I look at the realities of the day days of it, it's really hard. Right? Right, <laughs> and, right. and if I'm just looking at what's happened today or this week, I don't know why I'm doing it. But if I look at beyond me, now I have something bigger than me and that keeps me moving forward. But I also know that it's really resonated deeply with my readers and my listeners as a way to turn the tide on what their ancestors did, the ancestral lineage that they have and and creating a new lineage of ancestorship that is one that does the right thing because it's the right thing to do and not just because of the fringe benefits that they'll get as a result of change happening. And that will look different. Like if it's just march in the street because it's the right thing to do and everyone will say, I marched in the street. That's not good answer. Like, yes, go march, right? But also what else are you doing, right? In what ways are you following, uplifting the leadership, the scholarship, the activism of black and brown people? In what ways are you having those closed door conversations consistently over time to like chip at that wall of privilege of those who have more? That work, that work is that good ancestorship work. And you and I have talked about the deifying of us as stewards of this body of work that has been birthed within us. And how dangerous that is. Mm-hmm. With my patrons, some of them, I tell them that when you do your writing prompts and you post your reaction, you may not get a like from me. You may not get a response. And you have to sit with that and ask yourself, am I posting to get validation yeah. from Lisa? Am I posting yeah. to be seen by Lisa? Or am I posting because there's a bigger purpose I'm trying to get to that is independent of this person that has created this body of work. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same when I was doing the me and white supremacy Instagram challenge. And I remember a lot of, I made the conscious choice from day one, not to like any of the comments, like any of the journaling that was happening. And I remember seeing comments from some white women, like, Oh, like, why is she not? <laughs> Am I doing this right? right? <laughs> and I would say, like, I know that's what you're looking for is that positive reinforcement or that validation that you're doing the right thing or that I have co-signed that you are an ally. And that's not what this is about at all. That's not what this process is about. It's not what this work is about. And while I proudly own the work that I do and honor the journey that it takes to birth the work that I do. At the same time, I also have to remove myself from it for myself, because if I'm so connected to it and then so connected to the feedback that comes with it, I then start to create an image of myself that's based on what the world is telling me about myself as opposed to who I intrinsically am from the inside. And that's a really dangerous position to put yourself in because as we know, people like to build a pedestal and then chop it right down. And I think that is the unsafest place for us to be. Yeah. And we see this, I know you come from the coaching world. I've come from the coaching world where there's this cult of personality. And so I'm going to this event to learn about marketing stuff, but then this person has set themselves up as this, you know, oh, look at me. I'm so, and then all these testimonials glorifying them. And Yeah, as you said, it's dangerous and it's uncomfortable for me, at least. It just feels like something is deeply wrong there. Like for me, when it gets to that place, that's when I'm like, okay, I'm I'm out. I got to take a break. I got to take an Instagram break. I got to take a social media break. I'm trying to actively stop that. (laughs) Yes, because it's not seeing your humanity. It's not seeing the fullness of your humanity. 
It doesn't all. mean don't honor us, right? It doesn't mean don't follow us, don't uplift our work. It doesn't mean that. But it also doesn't mean that you get to construct who we are because we're so much more than our body of work. There's so many other parts of me that are just as important. And first of all, like freedom is very important to me. So anytime I feel like someone's trying to put me in a box, I react in very violent ways. Wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's not a good reaction. And I want the freedom to be able to, I hope I live a very long life, right? I want to become an ancestor soon. Don't get me wrong. Like, I want to live a very long life. Me too. I, <laughs> right? I a lot of things still and left to do. A lot of things I want to do. A lot of things I want to experience. And across that lifetime, I want to be able to explore all the things that call to me. And right now, the body of work that I'm stewarding is me and white supremacy. And I feel very honored and very privileged to steward this work. And like, as the years go by, more things are going to pour forth from me that are just as important. And that may not be related to anti-racism, right? May not be related to teaching other people, like may just be a personal expression, an artistic expression, an expression of myself as a mother or a wife or a woman or whatever other parts of me are there and they're just as valid and so i think we both react in the same way which is that we feel very squirrely when we feel somebody trying to define us as one thing i know both of us don't like being called activists because no. we don't have, we no. don't identify as such no 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 and even like anti-racist educator like yeah, yeah i put out this body of work but i don't <laughs> Don't just call me that. That's one no. part of what I do, but it's not everything. So, and in a world where Black women especially are confined to these stereotypes and to these roles, part of my freedom work for myself is busting all of those and saying, no, actually, this is what I am. And this is what I am right now. You come back to me two years from now, you might see another part that you didn't expect to see two years ago right? Like I'm constantly evolving and, and it's okay that I am and it's good that I am. And it's good that you are. When I started the intro and to introduce you, I talked about how we met yeah. and then the friendship that grew from there with your blog post going viral in August of 2017. And then I had a blog post go viral in October, 2017. And I didn't even know who you were. And there you were sharing my stuff. And then, you know, <laughs> just like, oh, okay, that's nice. Then we got on the <laughs> Zoom and had chats every week and built this relationship. So as you look back, I remember you were very expressive with your boundaries. You had a post that said, these are the people that I'll accept as friends. These are the people I won't, spelling it out. And now, as you talk about evolution, mm -hmm. those boundaries aren't fully expressed. Like I don't go to your page and say, oh yeah, this is what... Why is it important that we allow ourselves that evolution? Who was Layla back then and who's Layla yeah. now? Yeah, I feel like back then, I was still very early on in my own like awakening of consciousness and was suddenly like you thrust into the limelight and had to contend with interactions and dynamics that just I just hadn't had to deal with before. And being put in the spotlight and that spotlight is all like, white people staring directly at you and wanting this from you and expecting this from you and telling you that this is what you are and judging you in all these ways, like it will do something to you. And you realize very quickly just how vulnerable you are, just how not prepared you are to be in that space. And the boundaries go up and they're very clear and they're expressed very clearly. And it was for me like really important self-care that I needed to be able to survive first in this journey and then to be able to thrive. I think what the difference is now is even though that there are more of those eyeballs and that spotlight on me, I have grown where I don't need to say it. I just practice it. I don't need to get into an argument with you about my boundaries. I don't need to defend why I will do something or not do something. I just practice it, right? And so it, it moved from having to express external boundaries to learning how to practice internal boundaries. So the difference now, for example, is an internal boundary that I have is, oh, somebody's being called out on something on social media. I don't need to involve myself in that. 
I don't need to go comment on it. I don't need to get involved with it. Not because it's not a valid situation that's going on, but because I know that me putting myself in that space will withdraw my energy, will distract me from what I was actually focusing on doing that day and will impact how I show up for myself and my family in that day. Wow. So an internal boundary is don't get involved. It's none of your business. Keep it moving. <laughs> Do your work. <laughs> and really, you right. then teach people how to get your reaction. Yes. And I remember you taught me this, actually. You taught me if we are responding each time, because we've been friends a long time, as you said, and you saw me go through so many of my posts being reported and then yep. censored. And I believe you had the same thing happen as well. And as writers, we both felt like, I can just censor our words without asking us what happened. Or, exactly. That was really hard. But also you taught me that every time that happened and I would share something about how upset I was or how angry I was and show my hurt and show my trauma and my pain, that I was teaching people how to get at me. Right. Yes. Right. So even though I may feel those feelings, I don't need to emote them publicly. I emote them with my people. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who are my friends who I feel trust with, who I know it won't go further than them, and who will hold space for me to feel my emotions, but also remind me of who I am and remind me what my values are yes. and how I want to hold myself in the world. That is the difference. Yes. And some of those conversations I even look back on because it's like maybe I'm in that situation now. I'm just like, as I said before, you know, what would Layla say? Then I look through the thread and I'm like, oh yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. That's yeah, right. We don't get involved. We don't get involved. <laughs> it's like I could come up with a, a list of Lisa and Layla's boundary tips. And that would be one of them. And of course it would be different, right? If you are like you and I who do this work, those boundaries are going to look different than someone who is white that needs to talk to Uncle Racist or Grandma Bigot about yeah. the things that they're saying. So in some ways, there are boundaries that can be shared between us, between you and I as educators yeah. and them as people in family situations. And then it's a little different too. Yeah. And I, you just made me think of a scenario that arose today where nothing bad happened. Don't worry. <laughs> but I realized in responding to a particular email that this is a situation because it involves me as a parent. This is a situation where I may not be as well boundaried as I usually am because it could indirectly impact my children. And my mama bear comes out, right? And it's like, I may accept to do things that I wouldn't necessarily do if it was just me. So I had that realization and thought, you know what? Like, I need to call on my team because they know what my boundaries are. They know what my standards are. And they can help me to uphold those boundaries to this person in a way that I would want to if they were anyone else in a situation that didn't involve my kids, right? And so having that level of self-awareness today was very important to me because it was like, you're the boundaries queen, but in this situation, you know, you're willing to give some leeway here. Why? Especially when it is a situation that potentially you could come to harm if you're not careful, right? So sometimes you have to bring in other people and that's why it's I'm very happy to be the friend that gets called on when a situation arises and it, how yeah, do I deal with the boundary here? You're excellent I am that with friend. that. <laughs> <laughs> you're really good with that. It's just like, yeah, what are you doing, Lisa? Like, this is right. it. This is what you should this be. This is it. Do this, right. this, and that's it. What is it? There's no situation here, right? So I'm glad to be that friend, but I also am constantly learning as well because different situations will evoke different parts of us. So sometimes it's easier to, let's say, hold a boundary with a friend or someone external, but maybe not with your mother or your spouse or your children, right? And that's where you have to think, okay, I got to be a little bit more creative here. <laughs> In the boundary, it's like, it's all about self-love. That is what the boundaries are for, is self-love. So in this situation, if I let my boundary down, is this still as self-loving to me as it could be? Mm, yes. Good question. And if not, why am I willing to not be as loving to myself as I deserve to be? Yeah. I have a couple more questions because I know we could be here all day, but I'm going to ask you one more and then we'll close off. I think, and around boundaries, one of the things that you 
and one of my sisters also said the same thing, but last year when I had these really challenging conversations with some business owners that wanted me to join their coach academy. And I remember reaching out to you. And one of the things you shared with me is that you have to have some sort of list or a personal constitution, or when it comes to speaking gigs, what do you need instead of being open to what they can give? That's when right. it comes to podcast interviews or appearances, that these are the needs that need to this be These are the things that need to be in place for yes. me to feel like I want to do this event. I'm safe in this event and yes. I'm happy to be here doing this with you. Yes, yes. And that goes for anti-racism work. That goes for becoming anti-bias, anti-oppressive. Is what am I going to say yes to? What are the things that need to be met so that I say yes? Yeah. You want to know what those things are for me? Yes. So when it comes to my work, as we said earlier, (laughs) you have to have done the book. Like, why am I having a conversation with you? Especially a long form conversation. It's one thing to be doing a media feature and it's a story, right? That's one thing. If I'm having an extended conversation with you, a podcast interview, we're doing a talk, we're doing an event and you have white privilege, There is no way that I'm going to be in that conversation with you unless you have done the book. And I mean, done, not read. Journals, not read. And some people can fool you, right? They'll say, but they don't realize that their cadence, their somatics, their energy tells other, betrays them every time. Within minutes. So that is a non-negotiable for me. And it's not because I want to say, ha, you did my work. No, (laughs) it makes it safer for me to be with you, first of all. absolutely. Secondly, it offers the listeners a much deeper layer of conversation that is of better value than a surface layer where we're just parroting the things that are in the book anyway. Why did you write the book? When did you know? (laughs) What is white privilege, right? Like, let's go a bit deeper here. So many people have heard these things again and again and again. Let's offer something really meaningful. So that's a non-negotiable for me. There are certain technical logistics that have to be in place and all of this is documented. So it's all expressed very, very clearly. In order to be able to get to a stage where I'm speaking in a space, many things have happened that don't even involve me before that point. And I'm privilege to be in a space where I have a team that can support me in that way. But even when I didn't, you know, I would ask the questions. I would say, we're not doing this until this is in place. Right. I set the standard. My team doesn't set the standard. I set the standard because I know what I need in order for me to feel safe, in order for me to feel good. I made this point about self-love, but even greater than that, or in addition to that, As a Black woman, one of the ways that I've been conditioned by white supremacy is to so undervalue myself and undervalue the worth that I bring to the table. And I have so learned how to value the worth that I bring to the table. And so I make everyone very aware of that, right? This is what this level of work is. This is what I'm bringing. So this is the level of respect that is required. This is the level of honoring that is required in order for us to have a very nourishing interaction mutually. Not just one-sided for me to feel good about myself. No, mutually for us to feel this went really well. This was, we're so glad we did this. This is so helpful. I got so much from this. That all has to be in place. And so I think that is developed over time. I think, like you said, it has to be written down. You have to be really clear. You have to know why. Why do I need this to be in place? Yes. Not just willy-nilly, just choosing things, right? I need this in place because of this. So for example, one of my things is that anytime we do an event, the way that we do Q&A, it's very moderated. It has to be, yes. Tell us why, Lisa. Why does it have to be moderated? You're going to get all type of ratchet responses. People are going to come up with their trauma, their drama. I can't tell you how many people, even in my direct messages, tell me about their father's suicide. It's just, you don't know me. And so people come in with all, what's your question? And they come in with their long list of all the suffering that they've had and how you're wrong. And it can be a mess. Yeah. I feel like this work, like it will teach you to have boundaries. Even if you didn't want to, you learn just to save yourself. 
So from that's from a work perspective. From a personal perspective, it's just a very strong part of my values that I have to feel free and I have to feel that I'm being authentic to myself. And sometimes that gets me in trouble. Like sometimes I say something and my husband's just like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you're being kind of selfish or you're not being flexible here or, right, you know, right. and it's like, I get it. Some things I'll give, but this has to be in this way. And even if you would do it differently, we're different. I feel like my friends are very well boundary people anyway. This never happens as something that comes between us. Right. Right. We're very respectful of our own personal boundaries. So it never causes a conflict between us. But I think sometimes with people who are maybe more acquaintances or peers or people that we know, but don't have a deep relationship with, like, well, they think I'm being a bitch. Basically, if I say no to this request, okay, so then I'm a bitch, right? Like I'll try (laughs) try as best as I can to politely say no. And my no is my no, and I don't have to explain it. And if that upsets you, I mean, that's, you're valid to that upset, but that's your upset. My time is so precious. That's how I feel. I feel like our time is so precious. And where we choose to give our energy to says a lot about how we prioritize ourselves. That's it. That's it. And for me, when you talk about time, someone had asked me one time, who's your mentor who inspires you? And I said, history. History is my mentor. History is my teacher. History is the only thing I answer to. Because in seven generations, will people look back and say, Lisa did good work. Layla did good work. That's it. I remember the year that you spent waking up every single day. And just, <laughs> yes, yes, 365 yes. days, waking up at 4 a.m. every single day to journal. Even and weekends. you so, even weekends, even when you were sick, whatever it was, what was going on, you did your journaling and you just made it such a priority and you valued your time and what you were putting into it. And there were certain things I remember you said that you wouldn't say yes to an event that was very late the night before, because then that would mean that you wouldn't be able to get up early the next day to do your journaling, right? And the event is something in public that people can see and the journaling is just you at 4 a.m. But that was more important to you. And it just, it says so much about how you prioritized yourself and what was important to you and that you defended it, like no matter what. And sometimes I think we're afraid to do that because of how it makes us look to other people or what projections other people could put at us because they don't really understand why we're doing what we're doing. And the part of like growth is, allowing people to have the thoughts and feelings about you that they have and not feeling like you need to over-explain what your priorities are and why you do what you do in the way that you do it. And, and with this work, because I had spent a year, and I know this is the same with your work, we spent so much time deconstructing the narratives people told about us due to yeah. skin color, religion, and so on, that that work is what protects us now from the labels that people want to lay on us. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. And I feel, and we talked about this earlier, but maybe we weren't recording yet. <laughs> we talked about this, but we were talking about how the real juice and the magic and the wisdom for us actually comes in the quiet, reflective time away from people where we may not even look like we're doing anything. Right. right? We're just walking or sitting, thinking, staring off into space, right? coloring. Like we don't look like we're doing (laughs) anything, reading a book. And that's where all the magic is happening. And we can't mastermind it or manage it. We just have to create the space for it. And creating that space and defending that space is actually a part of my service to the world, even though it looks like I'm absent. Absolutely. Yes. So my last question to you is for someone listening. What would be your advice on how to stumble bravely? I love this phrase so much. I love you for creating it. I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is accepting all that it means to be a human being. If I accept and own and love all of my humanity, then I accept that stumbling is really a big part of being human. Failing is a huge part of being human. Huge. 
learning the same thing over and over again and yet still making the same mistake again and again and again is a part of being human, right? All of these things are part of being human, but that bravely like that. And for me, one of my values is courage, right? Having that courage, having that braveness to say, I know if I do this, I'm going to fall and hurt myself, possibly hurt other people because I'm not fully aware of all the things that I need to be aware of. But I'm going to jump. I'm going to take that risk. I'm going to take that step because it's in the right direction. I know it's in the right direction. I know that it's better to stumble bravely than it is to stand still and be safe. Yeah. Layla, it was beautiful being in conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. I love this conversation so much because as usual, being in conversation with you is so much deeper and richer and fuller than it often is with many other interviews. So thank you. Because we're introverts and we go deep. I was in conversation with New York Times and the Times bestselling author Layla Saad. Book is entitled Me and White Supremacy. You can find out more about Layla and the resources mentioned in this episode by going to www.innerfieldtrip.com. Just search for episode 12. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely. <laughs>